before we do that, here's a couple logistical things. Um, we are in the middle of a website redesign, and it'll make things a lot more uh, easy for us as we communicate with you and to the community around us. There'll be some ways to uh, supplement some of the communication we do on a normal basis through our website, but also it'll help out with things like hosting sermons and so forth. The website we currently have is just out of date and it's unwieldy. So we're in the middle of that, but we need some help on a couple of things. Um, one, of is, one of those things is some graphic design. The company that's doing this for us is mostly handling that, but we need a new logo, and we're kind of at a stopped phase right now before we can move forward. And I know we've got some artistic people here. We can shop it out and pay for it, but I thought it might be a good idea for us to keep that in-house and let a couple of you invest in that. So if you have some artistic uh, design capabilities, see me maybe afterward or call me or text me. Do you mean to go to this mic? Would that be better? No? I'll, we'll try this and I'll move if I need to. Um, and uh, yeah, so if you have some graphic design capabilities, see me and we'll get that moving forward. Um, also, there's some opportunities in our worship team. Obviously, you can see Andy's alone today. A few of our people are not here today to be part of our team, but we want to open that up a little bit more broadly. I know there's some new people around here that has some musical capabilities. So if you're interested in joining, being part of that worship team, then you can uh, see either Andy or Nate or even me. We can get you directed toward that. And then lastly, there's a lot more I can say, but we'll send you out an email with some other updates. But lastly, next Sunday is our celebration of our 10th anniversary. So we invite you to be part of that. I hope that you'll come. As I've been emailing you the past couple of weeks, we want this to be an opportunity to reflect on God's goodness to us over the past number of years. So we're going to set aside some time both during the service and then later for the picnic in the evening when we gather together for some time to uh, just celebrate through, through testimony. So if you would like to share a bit about how God has been working in your life through the years or even months that you've been here, we invite you to do that. So please think carefully about that over the next hours or days and get with me and we'll make sure that we preserve a slot for you. Okay, let's turn to Genesis 50 together if you're not already there. We are at the end. We have taken our time through the book of Genesis. I don't know how many sermons we've had through it, probably 65 or so. It's taken us a couple of years because of breaks here and there. So this is another major milestone for us. We've gotten through John's Gospel, and we've gotten through the book of Romans, and we've gotten through Genesis. So 10 years, three books. That's not too shabby, I guess. Um, we've done a lot of other sermons, by the way, here and there on some other topics, but those are the big chunks, and those are three of the big ones. I was a little concerned to bite off Genesis because it was long, but we thought we could take bigger chunks. After all, the genre, the, the uh, kind of um, um, literature it is, is narrative, so you can take it in big chunks, you can tell big stories, and so we've tried to do that along the way. But there's some interesting themes that show up along the way as well. And one of the things that concerns me among us basically conservative evangelicals is that we don't use Genesis properly. Here are the two most common ways that Genesis is used in the evangelical church today. And I think two are misuses. Both of them are. The first is we try to use Genesis 1 through 3 as a science textbook. Now, be careful to hear me here, and you can go back and listen to some old sermons 62 or 63 ago. I do think that some science is taught in Genesis 1 through 3, but that's not the primary point. 
When Moses wrote those things down, he was not trying to defend the Israelites' faith against atheists. That's not what he was primarily trying to do. The primary thing that Moses was trying to do, so this is a correction of that abuse of that use of the text, is he was trying to help the Israelites trust their powerful, really gracious God. Genesis 1 through 3 does teach us truths. Everything there is true. But the primary thing that Moses was trying to do in Genesis 1 through 3, where the account of creation is given, the account of the fall, the promise of redemption, is he was trying to help the Israelites, to whom he wrote many thousands of years later after the events, to believe that their God was powerful and their God was good. In evangelical church today, too often we get caught up in the details and arguing over the text, and we miss the major message. The message of the beginning of the book, which carries forward throughout the rest of the book, is that God is powerful and God is good. And therefore, as a consequence, He is worthy of our trust, He is worthy of our worship. The second major problem that evangelicals bring to the text of these 50 chapters of Genesis is that we try to make the people within its pages heroes. We try to make Noah into a hero, and Abraham, and Isaac, and Jacob, and his sons. The problem with that is that though there are many commendable things about these men and women, there were lots of problems as well. In fact, tragic character flaws. So often what we'll do is we'll look at a guy like Abraham and we'll see him exhibiting faith perhaps whenever he puts his son on an altar and is about to plunge a knife into his sternum. And so we say we should be brave like Abraham. And while that may be sort of supplementary, while that might be peripherally true, not the sacrifice part, the the bravery part, that's not the main point of that text. The main point of that text and every other within the book of Genesis is that God calls his people to trust him because he is absolutely trustworthy. And the major promise of the book of Genesis is that God will remedy the problem of sin. Humanity falls into sin in Genesis chapter 3. And rather than allowing them to languish in their sin, rather than abandoning them altogether, he comes to them and he promises them grace. And throughout the rest of the 47 chapters of the book of Genesis, we find people, people who are sinners, people who left to themselves will implode But throughout the pages of this precious book, God keeps his promises. So primarily, the book of Genesis is not about hero worship. Primarily, the book of Genesis is about the fact that God always, without fail, for our rest and for our joy, brings us his promises. He always brings his promises to pass. So, We have tried along the way through the 50 chapters of Genesis to correct these two misuses. We are not primarily to argue about the details of the text in an argument against our atheistic neighbors, though it may be useful and helpful in that regard. Primarily, what we find as we walk away from this powerful covenant-keeping God and see his work within its pages, primarily what we are to find is that we are to trust him, to have our confidence in him. Moses wrote these things down for the people of Israel as they came out of captivity in Egypt. They were a broken people. 
They were a fragile people. They had no confidence. They had no ability in and of themselves to take care of themselves. They were going to travel and sojourn among people that were much stronger than them, with more capability, more experience in warfare. And God was calling these people, fresh out of slavery, to go travel among their enemies and to trust Him in the process. They were not primarily going to be engaging in debates. They were not primarily going to be worried about their hero neighbors. They were worried about their life. They were worried about some very big questions. The first being, who is in control? The second being, will we be okay? And if you think about it, now 3,500 years or so later, after Moses wrote these things down, those are our basic questions as well. We want to equip you as followers of Christ to be good apologists. We want you to be able to defend your faith. I want you to believe that God made all things. I want you to believe that there really was an Adam and Eve. I want you to believe that there really was a fall. I want you to believe all those things. But primarily, the questions that you are dealing with on a daily basis are the same ones that Moses' audience dealt with on a daily basis. Who is in control? And as a corollary question, can he be trusted? Which leads to the second question that I just mentioned a minute ago. Will we be okay? Marriage problems make you ask the question, will I be okay? When your children are a mess, you ask yourself the question, will we be okay? My son Jack is in fifth grade. The end of fifth grade, they have a big field trip. And it's a big unit within their social studies program. And so what they do is they learn economics and government and things like that. And so then toward the end of the year, and this just happened last week, they get together at this facility down in the short north. It's like an old school building. And there's a little town set up there. And they all get jobs like mayor and council person. And there's a newspaper and a radio station and a bank and all that kind of stuff. And then for a whole day, they get to pretend like they're grownups. And so they bring in some of the parents, including Whitney and I, and we went and we volunteered for the day. Well, because we live in the suburbs and we're trying to teach our children to be, you know, good little polite people, they have to write notes to us afterward. So uh, the little section that I worked, and I worked in City Hall, and so there was like a fake mayor and a fake, like, you know, town treasurer and all that kind of stuff, a fake you know, city lawyer. We, we help these kids do their job for the day. So they send us letters afterward to thank us. So I got a letter from um, this little girl, and I won't say her name, and she's been in school with Jack since kindergarten. They've been uh, together for six years now, and um, she's, a, she's a difficult little girl. Jack had a run-in with her, I remember, in first grade. He came home one day off the bus. He was very uh, upset and forlorn, and I said, buddy, what's wrong? And he said, um, I got in a fight today with this girl, and she told me that God isn't real. And so they had this like little apologetics debate in first grade over coloring or addition or something like that. And so, um, so he's had some interesting conflicts with her through the years. And so that's kind of continued along the way. They're back in class together this year, and it's been tough. And so we've talked through it a little bit. And one of the things I've said to him along the way is, buddy, probably there's some things going on in her life that you don't know about that color the way she looks at the world. So be patient with her. Be kind to her. 
So this letter that she wrote, um, she, uh, I think she actually lives in our neighborhood um, in another section. She said, um, you know, thanks for helping us out. You were very nice and so forth. But she said, um, it came at a good time. Remember, this girl's like 11. And she said, um, it came at a good time because my family's going through some really hard things and we have a lot of financial stress. And I just, I read this last night. And, and I just, I mean, I just wanted to cry for her. What 11-year-old girl should have to be aware of these realities to begin with? And this little girl that argued with my son in first grade over the existence of God needs to see in her classmate and in his family that there is hope. And so at the end of the day, that little girl needs to know that she's going to be okay. But she won't be okay just because she hopes so, or she crosses her fingers, or mom and dad figure it out, or dad gets a better job. That, that's not what makes us okay. Israel despite the fact that they saw the power of God, wondered all the time, what would be okay? They would see God's power one day, and the very next day they would doubt altogether. They would see Pharaoh and his army drown in the Red Sea, as we learn in the book of Exodus. And then a couple of days later, they're wandering around, wondering if they have enough to drink or eat, or if their sandals will wear out. And we are the same. So the book of Genesis primarily, I think, holds some very interesting truths and tension. And Genesis chapter 50 wraps those thoughts up in a good summary way. So as we study together in Genesis 50 today, I think we will, in a good sense, review the messages of the book. The first thought, I think, that comes out of Genesis chapter 50 is this. Though death is heartbreaking, it will not have the final word. In fact, that's much of the truth that we find in this chapter. And so let's read and see if we can see together this and other truths. This is God's word. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel, or Jacob. Forty days were required for it, for that is how many are required for embalming or for mummification. And the Egyptians wept for him seventy days. When the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, I am about to die in my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan. There shall you bury me. Now, therefore, let me please go up and bury my father, then I will return. And Pharaoh answered, Go up and bury your father, as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father. With him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the household of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's household. Only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. There went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. When they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation, and he made a mourning for his father seven days. When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning of the threshing floor of Atad, they said, This is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. Therefore the place was named Abel Mizraim, that is beyond the Jordan. Thus his sons did for him as he had commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan, and buried him in the cave of the field at Machpelah to the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought with a field from Ephraim the Hittite to possess as a burying place. 
After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. This he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. May God's Spirit teach us through the reading of his word. One of the major themes of this text, and of the larger text as a whole, of Genesis as a whole, is that though death is heartbreaking, it will not have the final word. If you've been here from the beginning, or if you're basically familiar with the book of Genesis, you know that at the very beginning, that there was nothing. There was only God, and then beside Him, there was nothing else. And out of that nothingness, He created all things. And rather than arguing about how long it took, we should be in awe of the fact that He did it at all. God made everything out of nothing. And he superintended the whole process. And here we find, as the story goes on, that out of that nothingness, good came. God saw all that he made, seas and sky, birds and animals, vegetation, the changing of the seasons, the stars, and most especially his image bearers, the humans. All of that was good. But it didn't stay like that for long. For though God the Creator warned His image bearers that if they broke His law, they would die, they give in to the lie of the serpent, believing that God was some sort of killjoy that did not want them to be happy. Satan offered them something they could never have, equality with God and happiness apart from Him. They believed the crafty lies of the serpent, and as soon as they broke the law of God, eating from the tree, they died. As we have discussed, it was not as though the fruit itself was poisonous, but the truths that the serpent hissed into their ears, they were poisonous. And the poison entered their lives, 
And all those who came after them, sons and daughters, were plunged into sin. Death enters what God made. Death starts to undo the life that God created. Disorder comes into the order. All that God made good, sin made bad. But as we saw at the very beginning, as soon as the first sin was committed, God not only speaks words of cursing, of punishment, of consequence to the fallen image bearers, He promises them that life will come. In fact, life, spiritual life, rebirth, restoration will come out of the life of one who will come from the woman. That is to say, spiritual life will come through the promise of organic life. A baby will come, offspring of the woman, who will bring spiritual life once again to the people. But then what do we find throughout the pages of the book of Genesis? We find death. Adam and Eve's first sons, one of them dies at the hand of his brother. By the time you get to chapter 6, two chapters later, God wipes out the entire globe and Noah and his sons alone are left. But out of death, God once again brings life. But even though he does so, the world once again turns from him, seeking in its own pride to rebel against him and to set up their own kingdom. But God, in the midst of this, once again soups to them in mercy and promises life by choosing one from the dead. Abraham, who was a pagan, who did not worship the one true God, God calls out and gives him promises. Promises that he will build through him a nation and give them a land and through that people will bless the entire world. But Abraham is a sinner and Isaac his son is a sinner and Jacob his grandson is a sinner and Jacob's sons, the great grandsons of Abraham, they're awful sinners. Sin brings consequence. Sin brings death. And the cycle continues all the way now to the end of the book of Genesis. The consequences that God spoke to Adam and Eve are still coming to pass here in Genesis chapter 50. Jacob dies. At the end of the chapter, Joseph dies. A stinging reminder that the effects of sin still remain. But there is a hint of hope. A glimmer of light where Jacob makes his son's promise that they will take him and bury him in the land. And Joseph, at the end of his life, at the end of Genesis chapter 50, makes his brothers and their offspring promise that they will take his bones back and bury him in the land of promise. If there are three major things that God promised Abraham, we just rehearsed them, that God through Abraham will make a nation will give that nation a land, and through that nation, believing in God's promises, bless the whole world. We see that it's an interesting thing that that land is part of those promises. Why would God include that particular thing? 
The most important promise that God made Abraham is that he would bless the whole world through him. Why this promise of land? Why is it corollary to the other promises? Well, it's because we're a physical people. We're a people that have eyes that see, ears that hear, hands that touch. We're a physical people that that understand physical things. And by giving the people of Israel a physical place to be, to worship the one true God and to know Him, they were able to see with their eyes, to touch with their hands, to plant in the dirt, to drink the water, to taste the milk and the honey of the land, that there is a God who really does keep promises. There is a God who blesses. And the land was a physical reminder. It was a bit of a down payment. It was a promissory note, if you will, that in this small corner of the globe, that God would keep His promises to this people. So why was Jacob so intent on being buried back where he came from? Why was Joseph, who frankly spent almost all of his life in the land of Egypt, who probably would have had a grand funeral, maybe a place built to commemorate his life and his reign, why would he want to go be buried back in basic obscurity in the land of promise? Why? Because the land was a down payment. The land was a small but significant promise that God would keep all of His promises. The greater promise, as we've already said to Abraham, is that God would bring redemption out of rebellion, life out of death. The land was the physical promise that God would keep all of those promises. And it is significant that as we look at the prophecy within the book of Genesis and then throughout the rest of the book of the Bible, that we see that the land of Israel has much that orbits around it. In fact, we know that at the end of the story, whether this is literal or metaphorical, that a place called the heavenly Jerusalem will come down out of heaven and God will reign there from his capital city. There will be gates that never shut because there will be no enemies and no war. There will be no more tears, no more pain, no more sorrow. And the physical reminder of a city in a land is a promise that God will keep all of his greater promises. So Jacob took it seriously that he would be buried back where he came from. And Joseph took it seriously that he would be buried back where he came from. I'm not old yet. I'm getting older. But interestingly now, I begin to think about where I might be buried. I have parents that are in their 70s now. I know they think about these things. We've talked about it a little bit. We're now in that phase of life where our parents talk to us a little bit about some of those things because we kids need to know some of that stuff. I'll be 40 this year, so I'm like, I don't know, halfway through or 30% of the way through or whatever. And I begin to think about these things. This is our home. I wasn't born here. I was born in Cincinnati. That's where I'm from. But, But my life is here. My heart is here. My heart is here with you. And so where will I be buried? Will I spend the rest of my life here? So the other day we were driving down our road. I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago. And our our precious little son, Luke, is buried like two miles from my house. Is that where I might be buried? My heart's here. It'd be great to be buried next to Luke where I spent my life 
and, and spin it with you. Maybe that's where I'll be. And place means something to me now. Not because Columbus is more important than Cincinnati or Colorado or Nepal, but because this is my place. Because this is where God has me and He's kept His promises to me here. God promised Jacob and Jacob learned to believe that God was his greatest treasure. Joseph, despite the tragedy of his life, learned to believe that God was his greatest treasure. And the land was a promise, a physical reminder that God would keep all of his promises. We find here in this text that these people still are dealing with the reality of death. But death would not have the final word for them. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians 15 if you don't mind. First Corinthians 15, Paul speaks to the Corinthian church, a church probably which had some heresy which was entering into it, not the least of which is that the resurrection of Christ was not true and it could not be trusted. So at the beginning of this chapter, Paul rehearses for the Corinthian believers that indeed the gospel is true. It consists of the fact that Jesus died, that he was buried. He was raised from the dead. In verse 12, Paul says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? In verse 14, If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all men, of of all people, most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, verse 20, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. And then at the end of the chapter, verse 50, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, this mortal body must put on immortality. When the the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? This reminds us of the truths that we find in Genesis 50, that Jacob believed and Joseph believed that though they experienced the consequences of Adam and Eve's sin and of their own sin, death would not have the final word. By their proclamation, by their asking their family to take them back to the land of promise, they're speaking about future hope. God would keep all of his promises to bring life out of death, 
that death would not have the final word. At the beginning of Genesis, God brings life out of nothing, simply by the breath of His mouth. At the end of Genesis, we find death, but there is a promise of life here. That is why they want to go back to the land, because they believe that God will make all things new. God will keep all of His promises. And therefore, we don't have to fear death. Death is heartbreaking. The loss of a loved one can tear us to our core. Our own death is scary. That is why we don't like bad doctor's reports. That's why some of us don't like going to the doctor at all. We don't want to hear bad news. But the truth is, we don't have to be afraid because God brings life out of death. He did it at the beginning of all things, and He will do it at the end of all things. So Genesis is bracketed by these truths, that God brings life out of hopelessness. God brings life out of nothingness. God brings life out of death. I don't mean to be overly dramatic here, but Bethany doesn't have to fear when she goes to Nepal. Because even if she faces persecution, her life is in the hands of God. If you have a parent that is old, that is nearing death, if that parent has trusted Christ, you don't have to be afraid because that parent is going to a better place. If you receive a death sentence from your doctor, or in the future, if we receive death sentences because we stand for the cause of Christ, we don't have to be afraid because God brings life out of death. And the life that God brings, that will have the final word. Though death is heartbreaking, it will not have the final word. The second major truth that this text presents before us is one we've been seeing for the past 14 chapters or so. And that is that though sin brings tragic fallout, God uses evil for our good. This has been one of the major themes at the end of the book. The story of Joseph and his brothers. His brothers who were treacherous. His brothers who treated him so horribly. Brothers who traded him into slavery, wanting rid of him. The story of how God took their cruelty, the tragedy of Joseph's experience and the abandonment from his own brothers, his kin, and out of this brought good. It wasn't just the tragedy that his brothers brought to him, it was the tragedy of those around him as well, the tragic consequences of people like Potiphar's wife. The baker and the cupbearer that he met in prison that abandoned him and forgot him. Joseph throughout his life had been forgotten, misused, abused over and over and over again. Most people would have thrown in the towel. Most people would not have trusted God. They would have taken the advice of Job's wife and cursed God and died. But because God set his affections upon Joseph and gave him a new heart, and caused him to trust him. He preserved Joseph's life. And through preserving Joseph's life, he preserved thousands and later millions of lives. Joseph became second in command in the country. 
because he was made second in command, he saved all of the Egyptians from starving from the famine. But more importantly, even than saving the millions of Egyptians that lived in the land, Joseph was able to preserve the life of the 70 people in his family that left the land of promise and came to sojourn in the land of Egypt. The 70 people of Jacob's family, Israel's family, didn't die because Joseph had been sold into slavery. But God did not leave him a slave. He made him second in command in the empire. And through raising him up providentially by his grace and through his power, he preserves all of his promises. God had to do this because God made a promise to Adam and Eve that he would bring life out of death. God had to do this because he promised Noah that he would bring life out of death. God had to do this because he promised Abraham that through him he would bring life to the world. And if Abraham's family died, logically, those promises would fail. But famine cannot thwart the promises of God. Sin cannot undo the promises of God. God can even and does even use sin to bring about His purposes. This means that your sin and the sin of those around you cannot undo the promises of God. Your bad choices and the choices of those around you who affect you cannot derail the promises of God. Now, this does not mean that there is not fallout from your choices. There is. Sin is bad. Sin thrust this entire globe and all those who dwell in it into tragic consequence. We've all experienced it, and we will experience more of it this week. Sin brings consequences, and we shouldn't sin. But we do, and we deal with the consequences. And the tragedy of all this is that we not only deal with our own sin and its consequences, we deal with the consequences of the sins of others around us. Some of you now as adults are still dealing, still dealing with the consequences of the sins of your parents or your siblings or those around you today. The sins that we commit and the sins that those around us commit, they bring tragic consequences. But God, even in the midst of the fallout of our sin and the sins of others, uses evil for good. And the story of Joseph is perhaps the most well-known one in the Bible, save one, in which we find that God does this very thing. Solomon records for us in Proverbs 19.21, Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. It was the plans of the brothers of Joseph that he would be out of their lives for forever. Little did they know that by putting them, him out of their lives temporarily that he would eventually save theirs. I said just a moment ago that Joseph's story, save one, is the most clear example of how God brings life out of death, beauty out of brokenness. The one exception we find in Acts chapter 4. Turn with me, please, if you don't mind, to Acts chapter 4, and we'll read together verses 23 through 31.
Peter and John in Acts chapter 4 preach Christ, despite the fact that they are commanded not to do so, but they fear God more than they fear man. And after being buffeted, after being persecuted for their faith, they return back to their brothers and sisters, the assembly of the saints, and they praise God and listen to their prayers. Verse 23 of Acts chapter 4, when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard it, when the church heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, sounds like Genesis, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why do the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city, Jerusalem, they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. When they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. The greatest sin that was ever committed was not the treachery of Joseph's brothers against him. The greatest sin that was ever committed was the murder of the Son of God. But God used the greatest sin that was ever committed in his providence to bring about the greatest promise that he ever made. And that is that out of death would come life. God uses sin sinlessly. The Jews, Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Roman soldiers, they were culpable. They were responsible for their sinful choices. But God used their sinful choices to bring about good. So Joseph's great, 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 great relative, the son of Judah, would come and bring life out of death, just like he did at the beginning of all things. Though death is heartbreaking, it will not have the final word. And though sin brings tragic fallout, God uses evil for our good. Most of you are familiar with Jim Elliott and his four friends that were Killed, murdered on the beach in Ecuador in the 1960s. One of the men that was killed along with Jim Elliott had a son named Steve, Steve Saint. Steve's father was murdered along with Jim Elliott on that beach because they were trying to give the gospel to the Warani tribe. They had made early contact with them and thought they could safely, hopefully, bring the gospel to the Warani, but out of fear and because they were murderous and protecting their turf, they killed these five Westerners. If you know the story, Steve Saint eventually was baptized in those very waters next to the beach where his father was murdered. And he was baptized by those who killed his father because 
through the testimony of Steve's father and Jim Elliott and the other three men, they were so compelled by the courage and by the love of these Western missionaries and by the truths of the gospel that they converted many of the Warani tribe. Steve was not only baptized in the waters by those who slayed his father, he was adopted by one of the men who today still is considered to be his adopted father. Steve Saint, as he grew and got married, had his own children, lost a daughter to a sudden brain hemorrhage while she was a student at the University of Florida. Just a few years ago, I think in 2011 or 2012, while Steve was testing a wing for a plane that he was developing, a plane which would take the gospel to indigenous people groups that have never heard the gospel, a tragic accident happened. The wing of that plane fell on his head and he was paralyzed. To this day, he has not yet fully recovered. He had part of his spinal cord severed. He's able to walk a bit, but he is severely and probably permanently damaged in his ability to function. I watched a video that Steve put together um, a few years after his accident, and it ends with these words from this man whose father was murdered, who lost an adult daughter to a sudden brain hemorrhage, and who himself now is an incomplete quadriplegic. And Steve Saint said this, God doesn't waste hurts. He knew this because he saw it. He saw his father's death, his own blood being the seedbed, the matrix out of which life came to death in an unreached people group. And Steve Saint has lived his life with those truths that God brings life out of death. God brings good out of tragedy. And so I say to you as we finish the book of Genesis that God wanted Moses to tell the people of Israel as they came out of their captivity that they could trust him. They could depend on him because he would bring good out of bad. They need not even fear the specter of death because life conquers death. As we finish the book of Genesis together as a people, we need to know these same truths. There is a God and he is in control. He's not just powerful, he's good. He is to be trusted because he keeps all of his promises. The greatest of these promises is that God will bring redemption. Jesus is the perfect promise that life comes out of death, that good comes out of evil. And so as we end this book together, and as we continue our sojourn, we wait for the one who will make all things new. But we can trust him because he always brings life out of death. He always keeps his promises. And brothers and sisters, as we end this book together and we walk together, we can trust him. He is trustworthy. He is good. He keeps all of his promises. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, now take these 50 chapters. We're in your eternal.